We complain when politicians lie to us, but in one area we kind of insist that they do. We don't ever want to hear from our leaders that they are sick, exhausted, stressed or depressed. However, the historical record demonstrates abundantly that our leaders very often are any or all of those things, added to which, perhaps as a consequence, they are also occasionally given to the kind of distractions not generally known for promoting clear thinking and wise decision-making. It is therefore self-evident that immensely consequential decisions dictating global events and altering the lives of millions have been made, and are doubtless being made right now, by people who really should have stayed in bed. When has one person's illness changed history? What do politicians do to cover their infirmities up? And should we, perhaps hear us out here, give them a break. This is The Foreign Desk. It's very much to the detriment of constituents and very much to the detriment of Parliament if we can't find a better way of helping people who run into mental health problems and experience distress. And I hope that we will begin to see more being put in place for MPs. The situation around Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, getting COVID wasn't handled brilliantly in that I think the public were a couple of steps ahead of what Number 10 were telling them. But I do think that people feel when it's obvious that they weren't being told the whole truth, that that undermines their confidence in what they're told next time around if it were to happen. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Our first guest has seen the relationship between mental health and politics from both sides. Dr Dan Poulter is an NHS hospital doctor who works in mental health services and has also been, since 2010, the Member of Parliament for Central Suffolk and North Ipswich. Let's start by establishing some sort of control benchmark. Do you think that relative to the rest of the population there is an issue with mental health among members of Parliament? Very much so. A few years ago, together with Professor Sir Graham Thornicroft from the IOPPN at King's College London, I conducted a a study which was published in the BMJ Open, which looked at the levels of mental distress amongst members of parliament, and that was benchmarked against the general population once you'd age and sex adjusted the data, and also against other groups which we know to be exposed to high levels of distress, for example, people in executive roles. And it was certainly the case that of the almost a quarter of all MPs responded to that survey and reported statistically significant levels of distress, which would potentially be linked to lack of well-being, but in some cases to actually being definable or diagnosable mental illness. When we talk about distress, what do you mean by that? Is it the pressures and the stresses and the hours of the job itself? Or is there a thing where, and I think we should be careful to insert an all jokes aside caveat here, that people with perhaps a tendency towards difficulties of this sort are overrepresented among people who seek public office? Well, certainly I would suggest that the personality profiles of people in politics in Parliament is not representative of the general population. I think I haven't got any hard evidence for that, but that would be my own observation in my time in politics. But it's undoubtedly the case that there are aspects of the job which are very challenging. For example, you know, most MPs have two homes. One's going to be in London, one's going to be in their constituency. And it means often being apart from 
friends and family for at least half of the working week. Additionally, there's a lot of antisocial hours involved with being an MP and you're dealing with a very hostile environment on social media and an avalanche very often of emails, some of which are pleasant, some of them less pleasant, when there's an issue being debated in Parliament. So I think it's a uniquely challenging job and a lot of public scrutiny that also goes with that and the behaviour of individual MPs and more so for ministers being micro-scrutinised. There's all the recipes there for distress and people being tipped into depression or anxiety states, which probably wouldn't exist in other jobs. I did want to ask about the social media aspect of it in particular, because it's impossible to avoid noticing that any statement a member of parliament makes online, the most mildest, least controversial, we saw it even as recently as Sakir Starmer, leader of the opposition, tweeting pro forma congratulations to the prime minister on the birth of a child, and instantly gets besieged by hundreds of angry lunatics. For you personally, how easy or otherwise have you found it to tune that kind of response out? Because you would need to be more than human to be able to shrug it off every time. Well, that's right. I mean, personal perspective, I'm not on social media because I found it to be a hate-filled space, particularly for people in public life. And even when, as you say, Keir Starmer put down a positive, completely non-controversial tweet of congratulations to what is a you know happy life event for the Prime Minister uh, is jumped upon by people who want to hurl abuse and other vitriol. And my own view as well is that social media cheapens the importance of political debate because you can't discuss in a matter of a few characters and a few words in a tweet complexities of parliamentary legislation and parliamentary debate and some of the issues that are much more complicated than can be expressed in the form of social media. That crisis, if you like, in mental health among MPs, has it reached a point, do you think, at which it actually affects decision-making, that those difficulties that MPs are having with mental health is reflected in the actual governance of the country? Well, the other thing we found in the study we did, and we published another paper in the BMJ, which was about the alcohol consumption of members of parliament, which we also found to be high, certainly higher than benchmark professions. You know, I'm a doctor, I'm a teetotaler actually, but I, I'm sure medical colleagues are not necessarily uh, faultless in the amount that they drink. But certainly compared to other groups, MPs tend to drink more. And we know sometimes that mental health and distress or, or poor mental health can be associated with uh, the use of alcohol. And certainly my view is that a number of colleagues, and that paper bore it out, who are distressed and struggling may well turn to alcohol. And given the fact that we're debating into the evening and that we have a number of bars on site, which is quite unusual for most workplaces, I would suggest that that may be the route through which impaired decision-making may manifest itself. The other point, though, is that we know that people who become more severely distressed or become very anxious, that can interfere with the way that people function. And that will be no less true of MPs. So I think there are two issues there. There's mental illness in its own right, which we know can affect when it's more severe, how people function. But also there is the correlation with people sort of managing their day-to-day anxieties and stresses of work through alcohol, which we know MPs do. We have the on-site bars and how that could potentially interfere with people's ability to make 
uh, more rational decisions, should we say. Although I would hasten to add that the vast majority of MPs, I wouldn't suggest are drunk at work. But I think that it's certainly a crutch that some colleagues will use. There is another factor which obviously is not unique to politics, but politics is very much an arena in which people are, for obvious enough reasons, reluctant to admit vulnerability or are reluctant to give any sense that they haven't got it all under control. Is that a factor that also makes things worse? Very much so. And I think as you identify sort of stigma or self-stigma around mental illness and mental health is we know a problem. We've had some very brave discussions with the royal family, other groups, sports people have come forward and talked about their own challenges with mental health. But still in politics, it's quite a, a macho culture. And as an MP, even though it may be seen to be a part of a political party, it's quite a lonely business as well. And it's not really a team, the team sport that people might think it is. And I think people may worry, particularly that their constituents or their colleagues may think badly of them if they are seen to be potentially not able to perform at their best, or indeed it may affect their prospects of promotion to become a government minister or to be promoted to be an opposition spokesperson on a particular role. So there is certainly that issue of stigma, and we've seen that other countries have tackled these issues much more effectively in helping to provide more support and allowing politicians to be much more open when they are running into difficulties. And, and that's something it would be good if we could see more of here. Do you think there is a threshold at which voters are entitled to know that one of their elected representatives is struggling with this kind of thing? I think certainly in terms of if someone has a, is unwell, and that means they have to take a period of time away from work, I think most MPs, because you would announce that and say, I, I, you know, I'm unwell, I need to be away from work, for one month, two months, three months, or whatever the case may be. And I think most people are understanding of that. But I do recall you know, a number of years ago when I had a colleague in Suffolk when I was very first elected who attempted to take his own life. And I covered and supported his constituency work while he was recovering. And I had some fairly unpleasant emails from people suggesting there should be a by-election or something else should take place because he wasn't able to do that work himself for a relatively short period of time. So I think the difficulty in anything in public life and politics is that sometimes uh, people try and politicise someone's absence, no matter what the reason may be. I think in the context of, of that, it's really a matter for the local electorate to decide at a general election as and whether they think an MP is capable of doing the job. And that's part of the the benefit, I suppose, of having a constituency-based system that if a candidate is not up to a job for whatever reason, they should stand aside. But I, I add to that, we mustn't suggest that because someone is suffering from mental illness that they are going to be in any way incapable of being a member of parliament because that's absolutely not the case. You talked about a couple of potential solutions to this sort of thing, which have worked for you at least, which is staying off the source and keeping off social media. Those two things aside, in the research you did into this, did you happen across any other ideas that you thought might take the pressure off? Because I think for all that people enjoy regarding their members of parliament as punching bags to an extent, it's hard to imagine that the situation you've described results in optimum governance, which isn't good for either those who are governing or those who are governed? Now, the first thing I would do is I, I, would, I would have a very serious review, and I, I know the Speaker of the House of Commons would probably share my view on this, but I'd have a very serious review of how and when alcohol is available on the parliamentary estate, and certainly I would be reluctant to have bars open during 
sitting hours of the house. And I think, I think that's a controversial thing to say. I think that would be true of most workplaces. You wouldn't have places where you could be drinking alcohol on site. But the other issue is that a lot of MPs do not always know where to turn because the whip system, which are the whips of the people of the political party who are meant to get you to vote the way that the party wants you to vote or the government wants you to vote. Sometimes it isn't a pastoral system, it's a disciplinary system, if you like. So having a more developed occupational health structure in Parliament where MPs can more easily access support and help and then be directed to help is important. And I think that's particularly important to have that support here rather than people relying on support with their own GP in their own constituency. Because when you're spending most of the working week in London, if you happen to be a Scottish MP or a Welsh MP or somebody from Suffolk, where I come from, or anywhere else in the country, unless you're a London MP, you're going to spend a lot of your time away from your local health resources. We need to have a more developed support network and occupational health set up here, or at least the ability for people to be rapidly assessed and then supported to get the right help and possibly linking in with what's available over the river at St Thomas's Hospital. Just finally on this, if steps are not taken and if serious thought is not given to this, is there a concern that we arrive at a situation in which fundamentally, and I don't use these terms prejudicially at all, but fundamentally well-adjusted, level-headed people get a certain distance into a political career and just decide, I can't do this, this isn't worth it and this is going to break me, I give up? I won't name them, but I could tell you of at least half a dozen MPs, of which I know that to be true, who are no longer in Parliament, who were very good, capable, competent constituency MPs who valued the work they did for their constituents, but also in in two cases who had more to contribute and had contributed more at ministerial level. So I think you're absolutely right that unless we can do more to support people in public life and people in democratic public life in this country, we are going to lose good people or people will do one term as an MP and just for the time they're becoming effective in their role and getting up to running speed, they decide they want to leave because of the pressures and the strains of the job and deteriorating mental health. So it's very much to the detriment of constituents and very much to the detriment of Parliament if we can't find a better way of helping people who run into mental health problems and experience distress. And I hope that with the the current speaker who takes this agenda very seriously, that we will begin to see more being put in place for MPs in the months and years ahead. Dan Poulter, thank you for joining us. That was Dr Dan Poulter, MP. Politicians have in common with athletes that they will often push themselves long past the point at which most of us would decide it was all too much like hard work. But politicians are not only not athletes, many are quite the opposite, middle-aged or elderly and plagued by human frailty. Joining me now is the historian, author and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman. Alex, first of all, is this something historians think a lot about, how the illness of a particular individual can end up shaping global history? It's a complicated thing to approach because historians do think about it because obviously it's highly relevant. We know that physical and mental health conditions can and do affect behaviour. You can see that around you all the time. But it's often quite difficult as a historian to diagnose someone. Generally Mm. speaking, we're not doctors and it's quite unusual, even with kind of long gone figures, to have access to all their medical records. Of course, also when you go back in the past, 
people didn't necessarily describe their conditions in the same way we would now. So when you're looking at a figure a long time ago, such as the long-debated madness of King George III, there are, of course, theories that that might have been something like porphyria, but there's really no proof you're trying to make sense of symptoms written down in a very different time and different way than we would now. But with more modern leaders, we may not be entirely sure at the time, but we do get a very good idea usually quite quickly after they've left office of what ailed them. And at this point, we will talk about a couple of specific ones. The Suez Crisis, which you have written about extensively and which we have discussed on the radio as we attempted to reenact it for the Foreign Desk. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during that calamity was Sir Anthony Eden, who we later learned was not a well man at all. So I guess, first of all, if we look at what do we know about what was wrong with him? It is a bit vague, but we certainly know that he'd had quite serious physical and mental health issues for many, many years. He'd never been a particularly well man. And actually, Winston Churchill, of course, who'd been Prime Minister while Eden was Foreign Secretary for a long time, had been really quite cruel about this and had sort of taken the mickey out of him for being so unwell. It quite often resulted in things like him sort of passing out at parties and things like this. And it was said that there was madness in his family that there was kind of a hereditary problem. When it came to 1956 and the kind of crucial point of the Suez crisis, we know he was quite ill. I mean, three weeks before, so 5th of October 1956, he actually collapsed. He was visiting his wife in hospital. She was in for a dental operation and he physically collapsed, had a fever of 106 degrees and had to be admitted to hospital. And we know that at the time he was taking drugs such as benzodrine, amphetamines, which, of course, were supposed to sort of pick him up. We don't know in what quantities. So certainly we can say at that time he was not a well man and a lot of the people around him did think that that was a factor in his poor decision making. But on the other hand, the whole cabinet approved what he was doing and they weren't all taking Benzedrine. <laughs> Although if it turned out that they had been, that might have explained a great deal uh, well, in, 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 yes. in, in retrospect. <laughs> you do there mention the mockery of his various conditions by Winston Churchill, who was in many respects a fine one to talk, especially pertaining to his victory lap as Prime Minister between 1951 and 55. His own biographer, Roy Jenkins, described him as gloriously unfit for office during that period. He did suffer at least one stroke, I think, of that we know of while in Downing Street. Do we know if that actually affected his decision-making? It's really hard to know if it affected his decision-making. And again, here what you're relying on really is sort of people around them talking and quite a lot of hearsay. But Churchill had been ill for a long time. I mean, he had his first heart attack in December 1941 when he was in Washington. So that was really just after Pearl Harbor. The reason we know about this, and we know about it in some detail, is because his doctor, Lord Moran, wrote a very detailed memoir about all of Churchill's health conditions, which actually most people regarded as really quite unethical that Lord Moran wrote this. I think it probably was very unethical, although highly useful for historians. And Moran said that Churchill's really serious decline dated from 1944. So again, we are talking about before the end of World War II. And you can see, for instance, the Polish ambassador at that time recording that he thought Churchill was kind of out of it when they were speaking. But yes, he had certainly had a stroke in 1953, possibly more than one at various points. But I think probably a lot of people are more fascinated by the wartime illness because, you know, whether you think he sort of bravely struggled through it or whether you think it affected him, that's quite interesting either way. Is there a consensus among historians on Churchill during the war? Because he did write later quite candidly about the depression that he suffered, the black dog, as he put it. Do we know if it did actually affect his decision making? 
We don't know really, and there's a lot of argument about this. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that by describing the black dog, he was describing some form of depressive condition. However, there are people who very strongly argue that he wasn't, that he was just a bit sad (laughs) and, you know, that they feel very strongly that Churchill was fine. I'm not quite sure what the agenda is behind that unless you think depression is some form of moral failing, which of course it isn't. It is an illness. But there's a lot of argument about whether any of this really affected his decision-making, also his drinking, which was exceptionally heavy. I was about to move on to that because the descriptions of Churchill's drinking, you would have to wonder if that didn't affect his decision-making, then what would? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's fascinating that kind of everybody around him said that he was quite unaffected by drinking these gigantic quantities. And in fact, I remember there is one quite good document recording a time that he really did suffer and had a terrible hangover, which is when he went drinking with Stalin, who apparently outpaced (laughs) even him. So apparently you could get Churchill under the table if you were Stalin, but almost nobody else managed it. There is at least one example of somebody making decisions which affected conceivably all of human life. The future of mankind hung in the balance at one point. Point on the watch of John F. Kennedy, who, it may not have been widely appreciated at the time, was extremely unwell and also taking quite a lot of weird stuff in an attempt to deal with it. What do we actually know about how sick Kennedy was and what he was either helping himself to or being prescribed? Well, I mean, again, we are kind of relying on sort of piecemeal evidence here because we don't have Kennedy's full medical history available to us. We have bits and pieces. So what we know is that he, he'd been seriously ill really since childhood in various ways. He had conditions such as Addison's disease, a thyroid condition, mm-hmm. which made him ill in a long-term way. He had really terrible back problems and was in quite a lot of pain a lot of the time. So early on, he reached out to this rather controversial doctor called Max Jacobson, who was known as Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> I'm afraid this is true, who used to give him these injections that involved all sorts of things like methamphetamine. I mean, again, a lot of these people were taking amphetamines at the time, which now, of course, seems quite extraordinary to us. But in the 50s and 60s, this was more run of the mill. So, you know, he was taking these injections and they probably were affecting him in some way. We also know there are various other drugs he was on, cortisol, for instance, which can cause depression and psychosis, paragoric, which can be sedative. He was also taking phenobarbital, various analgesics, opiates, all sorts of things. And of course, combining these things can be worse. But we don't know the quantities he took any of this in or really how often. Now, some people have argued that by the time that the Cuban Missile Crisis happened in 1962, he'd moved on to a rather more sensible medical regime without some of this kind of quite extreme drugs being taken in who knows what quantities. But it's not completely clear. And there are certainly disagreements among historians about how much this must have affected him or not. For obvious reasons, the mental health of leaders is probably significantly more important than their physical health, especially given that so many mental health conditions are exacerbated by things like stress, lack of sleep, which I suspect are occupational hazards of running a country. What do we know about instances in which somebody who may have been elected to run a serious country in good faith, obviously experiencing a, and this is said in an entirely non-gloating, non-goading way, it's a sad thing to watch happen, but somebody really does start noticeably losing their cognitive function while still in office. And I, and I guess the unsurprising example of this is Ronald Reagan, certainly towards the back end of his second term as US president. Yes, I mean, a lot of people I think would now admit that the signs of Reagan's Alzheimer's were pretty visible 
in the last years in office and he was obviously in decline. I mean, close people around him like Margaret Thatcher wrote that you could see that he wasn't the man he had Mm. been in those late years. I think, unfortunately, it's in some ways quite common, partly also because, of course, by the time you get to be president or prime minister, you generally are in the older years of Mm. your life. Of course, there are exceptions, but not all. And, you know, there was an awful lot of speculation during Trump's presidency about his mental state and about whether that was to do with various kind of neurodegenerative disorders or anything like this. And again, of course, it's very, very hard to say because without actual medical records, of course, you can't really just diagnose people, especially when you're a historian or journalist rather than a doctor. But I think it's probably much more common than we know is Mm. the answer because these are very high-pressure jobs and these are people who are often, you know, in the later stages of their lives. And it would not be terribly surprising just on the figures if a pretty large number of politicians did have kind of neurodegenerative disorders at some point in their later in their careers. Alex von Tonzelman, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and I'm joined now by Lance Price, former Director of Communications at Number 10 Downing Street, who currently serves as Chief of Staff to Member of Parliament Kim Leadbeater. Lance, let's start with a hypothetical. When a given leader gets really sick, thinking about this maybe in terms of your previous job, directing communications for Downing Street, what is the process regarding what to tell the public and when to tell the public? I don't think there's anything written down in any sort of ministerial or prime ministerial rule book about how you should handle these things. But I think the situation has developed where most people's instincts would be to go public as quickly as possible and with as much information as possible in the circumstances of a senior politician, senior leader falling ill on the grounds that, I mean, certainly in this day and age, and it's probably been the case for quite a long time now, these things don't stay secret for very long. And therefore, the sooner you, as it were, get on the front foot and are seen to be as open and transparent as you can be, the better. We had, of course, a real-life example of this in the United Kingdom at the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020 when the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, not only got COVID-19 but got extremely sick with COVID-19. He was in intensive care for a period. What did you make from a comms point of view of how that was handled? The situation around Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, getting COVID wasn't handled brilliantly in that I think the public were a couple of steps ahead of what Number 10 were telling them, in that they could see the Prime Minister. This was back in the days when we were coming out on our doorsteps to applaud the workers in the National Health Service and in the care service and so on. And it was obvious for anyone to see that the Prime Minister really wasn't well. And at that time, he was isolated with COVID. We knew that. But we were given the impression that he was coping well, he was working at his desk, and they wanted to suggest it was sort of business as usual, even though he was obviously self-isolating. And it was only a short time after that that actually he was rushed to hospital. And I think people felt that they'd been slightly misled about just how serious the illness was, which is not to say that you should give a sort of minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour bulletin on how the prime minister or anybody else is feeling But I do think that people feel when it's obvious that they weren't being told the whole truth, that that undermines their confidence in what they're told next time around if it were to happen. 
Have you personally, and you don't need to name any names, found yourself ever having to manage a situation in which there was a medical issue of some sort with a politician and you had to be involved in those discussions of what do we tell people and when do we tell them? When I was working for Tony Blair and he was Prime Minister at 10 Downing Street here in London, he did have a minor heart condition that he had to go in to hospital and have checked out. And on that occasion, we said so straight away and decided that the right thing to do was to be public about it and upfront about it. It wasn't particularly serious. I can't remember now. I think he stayed in overnight, but we told people exactly what was going on and he was back at work very quickly. Is there much discussion of how serious mental health issues, especially in a national leader, would now be handled? Because obviously there are mental health problems which are not medically disqualifying from holding high office, and certainly Churchill being an example of that, have done brilliantly as national leaders despite suffering from some sort of mental illness. But is there a concern now that because of that transparency and that scrutiny that you mentioned, that even if such an illness was not medically disqualifying, it might be politically disqualifying. It's a very difficult one, the whole question of mental illness. And I think one of the very good things about the way in which politicians sort of bear their souls rather more these days than they used to in the past and face up to their weaknesses and talk about the problems they may have in their personal lives is that MPs have been willing to talk about mental health problems, normally in the past rather than in the present tense, but at least that discussion is taking place. And there's no doubt at all that uh, senior politicians and prime ministers, and again, Churchill is an example, have certainly suffered depression on a very severe scale at times, and have probably faced up to other mental insecurities, shall we say, that probably don't go quite as far as clinical depression. Now, Those, I think, are harder for them perhaps to confront themselves or for their staff to challenge them about. And I think that given the enormous pressures at the senior level in politics that men and women face, certainly if they get to the position of prime minister, it's not surprising that they should find that challenging at times. And you have to be a pretty strong person, both physically and mentally, to be able to do the job. I would hope that were it to become a serious, debilitating problem for a prime minister or a leader of a party, that people would have the courage to have that discussion with them. But I'm less sure about that. Just as a final thought, then, have we conspired somehow between us as a polity in general just to make this job too hard? The job has become too hard for anybody to do. And that's a combination of the demands that the public and the media, to be fair, make on prime ministers and the expectation that they have a right to know exactly what that person is doing almost 24 hours a day. And on the other side, I think the tendency of incumbents of the prime ministership, certainly in the United Kingdom, to take on more and more and more and to be seen to be responding to not just the big issues of the day, but a lot of the medium size and indeed some of the trivial issues of the day. And I think the pressure comes from both directions. It comes from the public and the media on the public's behalf, but it also comes from the uh, individuals themselves and and their staff who look at the hurly-burly of the 24-hour news agenda and all the traffic on social media and feel that 
if we can't be doing something about all of this, we should be saying something about all of this. And that does put enormous pressure on people at the top. And I think perhaps we ought to give them the opportunity to take the foot off the accelerator on some of that from time to time so that they have more time, more energy, get more sleep and are better able to take the big decisions. Lance, I just wanted to pick you up on something you said in that last answer, and it may seem like a very small thing, but I rather suspect it's actually not a very small thing. And this is the issue of sleep. In your estimation, how many huge decisions which affect all of us and may have the power to change the course of human history are being taken by people who may only have got two or three hours the night before, and indeed the night before that and the night before that? The short answer to your question, Andrew, is very, very many. I mean, it beggars belief when you look at the kind of decisions that come across the desk of a prime minister and the import of them, just how serious they are, how many of them are taken not only with not enough sleep, and that's definitely the case. I've never heard of a prime minister or known a prime minister that has got what you or I would consider sufficient sleep to decide you know, which pair of shoes to put on in the morning, never mind anything else that they have to decide upon. And yet they are asked on an almost daily basis to make very, very big decisions that affect the lives of all of us. And I don't know what the answer to it is, because they probably could get more sleep if you could only persuade them that they ought to go to bed and stop reading the papers and stop worrying about things and stop watching the telly and probably get off Twitter. But it's a massive challenge. And it really does concern me that the people are making decisions when they're really not in, well, I wouldn't say they're not in a fit state to make them, that would be unfair, but they could probably be in a much better state to make them if they took a bit more rest. Lance Price, thank you for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. Finally on today's show, when politicians have to plough on despite whatever ails them, they often solicit help in literally styling it out. Joining me now from South Carolina is Leah Green, an Emmy Award-winning makeup artist with over 18 years of experience. Leah has worked with various politicians, including Senators Ted Cruz, Bernie Sanders and Marco Rubio, and President George W. Bush. First of all, we were curious as to how you got into your line of work. How did you start doing makeup? Makeup for politicians in particular? Well, I really was just a new makeup artist and I was wanting to get any jobs that I could. So word of mouth got me a job doing the 1996 political debate for the Republicans that was held in Columbia, South Carolina, which is where I lived. So it wasn't that I really just was seeking politicians, but seeking any makeup job. And that one came my way. What did you learn about what's different about doing makeup for politicians as opposed to anybody else? Is it a specific skill that you needed to learn? No, I don't really believe so. What maybe has changed over the years is HD television. So back in the day, before that, you had to do makeup that made everyone's skin look smooth and soft whether they were politicians or doing makeup for a television commercial. I guess one thing politicians do ask for that a lot of other people don't is they want to look like they've had a rested night's sleep because they are on the road so much. They are getting less sleep than probably the average person that that's what they mainly ask for. So, you know, everyone wants that, but they do want to look rested. 
How difficult is it, though, to get that balance right, though, of making them look like they are rested and they're healthy and, I guess, as youthful as they can be made to look versus overdoing it? How do you know when you've applied too much? Yeah, that does take a special eye. You do step back. You know, I've been doing this for so long. I I know what to kind of look for. You do want to have products that match their skin tone. You know, I don't always know what politician I'm doing or how many. So, you know, I have to bring a whole kit of everything. And that's the artist's part of the job. You're obviously working very closely with these people. As you find yourself moving up the chain of command, as it were, are there security clearances and so forth that you need to go through? Do you have people taking apart your makeup kits to make sure you're not smuggling in any nefarious powders? I do have to do a background check depending on who actually is the candidate. That may be, you know, a month or a weeks before I give them like my driver's license. I think I had to give social security number, those type things. But the day of, usually, depending on the candidate, there will be a secret service person that'll come and stay. They come about an hour early. So I have to get there about an hour early. And they also, a lot of times they'll have dogs that sniff for things. And the dog will check my bag, but the people don't usually. They may be missing something, but I feel like they know that they're hiring a professional. So maybe that's why they don't check every detail. It struck us when we were thinking about this that there's a whole range of skills involved in a job like yours. There's the obvious skill of applying the makeup. That's what you're paid to do. But there's also the skill, I guess, of handling that moment. You're right up close to some very powerful people in, I'm guessing, fairly stressful situations. They're about to take part in a candidate's debate or perhaps give a televised address to the nation on a matter of some grave national importance. How do you handle that moment? Do you try to talk to them? Do you just try to stay silent? What is the play in that moment? Andrew, I do take every situation differently. A lot of times the candidate has time to talk. They'll be very jovial. They'll want to ask me you know, questions about myself. And they are people people, so they like to talk. Then there's times where they don't have much time. Maybe it is a pressing moment, so their handlers will be trying to go over the questions that the interview may have with them and try to get their facts and their stories straight. I feel like one of my attributes is to calm people down. So that is something that I try to bring to the table. And then I am trying to build their confidence and help them look their best right before they go on. So it is different situations. You do have different talents you have to bring to the table. I'm sure another one of those talents in your line of work is a talent for absolute discretion. But are you allowed name names even as much as naming people who have been unusually good fun to do the makeup for? Bernie Sanders was someone he's like, you know, made me feel really good about how I did his makeup because I said, you know, you'll make him look better than he normally does. He doesn't care about what his hair looks like. There's other candidates that really don't want much makeup. They prefer just only powder. They don't want any other enhancements. And there's, you know, some that just love for me to do as much as long as I can. They just, I guess, just like being pampered. You know, I've done like Kamala Harris. She was super sweet and super nice. She's kind of like the life of the party. Rick Perry ran for president. George W. Bush, I got to do him twice. He was super nice. 
Another question along those lines, and I guess it's the inevitable corollary to that question, is that do you ever run up against politicians who are just extremely difficult in terms of having either very specific requirements or perhaps not knowing what they want? Really, no. I mean, I think they are people people, so they are you know nice to mostly everyone. Sometimes the situation maybe before they get to me has been a harried situation, so they may not be in the best mood or they know this is going to be a tough interview. But to me, they've always been super nice. I feel like they appreciate that I am helping them. I'm not trying to do anything bad for this situation. I'm only bringing good to the situation. It's something that gets talked about a lot, the different expectations in terms of presentation for male politicians and female politicians. And obviously, you are the person right at the centre of that. Do you perceive any movement at all in that? Is that changing? Is that improving? Or are men and women still held to this fundamentally different standard regarding how they look? Oh, I definitely think they're held to different standards. I think the difference is that there are female candidates. I think that's going in the right direction. But I do feel like female candidates, especially the ones that haven't been doing it very long, feel the pressure even more. I try to build their confidence, help them to know that they're doing the right thing by running. And anything I can and do, I try to say to help that situation. And just finally, then, because you will have had more cause to think about the importance of appearance to politicians than most people. What would it cost them if they just walked out onto a stage or in front of the cameras without any work or any makeup or any cosmetic retouching at all? Would it be massively noticeable to the voters, do you think? I do think it would be definitely beneficial for them to have makeup on before they go in front of that camera, whether they're male or female. The camera is brutal at times. Lighting helps the situation, the lighting in front of the camera. But shine plays a big part of appearance. So my job, first and foremost, is to get rid of the shine. Shine can make you look like you ran a marathon It's not the most appealing thing on camera. So I do think people judge how people look on camera. And that is something that makeup can help with. Leah Green, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy Evans. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.